I'm going to start this episode with a few quotes from an interview with author Lurleen McDaniel, who wrote this week's book, Six Months to Live. Here are a few things that she had to say to BookPage in 2000. The first rule of writing is to write about what you know. Few people wrote about the chronically ill, so people who had illnesses never saw themselves in literature. I started writing about kids with chronic illnesses, and they were just enormously successful, surprisingly so. You know, not every book has to have a happy ending, but it has to have a satisfying ending. I like to tell young people, no matter how bad things seem, just wait a day, wait a week. Life will turn around. I have known some magnificent young people who died very young, but had wonderful lives and inspired many people by their short existence. Obviously, the subject matter this week is on the heavy side, because it mirrors the subject matter Lurleen McDaniel explored throughout her long career. In Six Months to Live, for example, main character Dawn is diagnosed with cancer on the very first page. Throughout the novel, she navigates her own treatment while building a meaningful friendship with Sandy, a girl she meets at the hospital who understands her new life more than anyone she knew before the diagnosis. On episode 249, my guest and I discuss the emotional highs and lows of Six Months to Live and theorize about why young readers have been drawn to stories like this over the years. We also consider the ways in which this category of YA has evolved more recently. If you're not in a place to hear a conversation about illness, death, and grief today, I totally understand if you need to skip this one for now. Take care of yourself. This week's guest is Kelly Lloyd Gilbert. Kelly is the author of Conviction, a finalist for the Morris Award, Picture Us in the Light, a California Book Award winner and Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist, When We Were Infinite, and most recently, Everyone Wants to Know, about a family of dysfunctional influencers whose empire starts to publicly crumble in the wake of family drama. She writes and occasionally teaches in the San Francisco Bay Area and is infrequently on Instagram and Twitter at Kelly Loy Gilbert. I am somewhat frequently on Instagram and fairly infrequently on Twitter at SSRPod, keeping you up to date on everything that's happening with the podcast, what I'm reading in my personal life, and the hilarious things that my dog is doing. You can also keep up with the show on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Social media is a fantastic way to spread the word about the show if you are enjoying it. Please take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and post it to your Instagram story, tagging me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. Along with five-star ratings and reviews on your listening platform of choice, these kinds of shoutouts really do help SSR grow. Your favorite podcasters are always asking you to do these things because they go such a long way, especially for independent shows like mine. So thank you in advance for doing so. There's also Patreon, a platform that connects independent creators like me with fans of the content they create for as little as $1 per month, and that works out to literally 25 cents per episode. You can access fun, exclusive rewards and take an active role in keeping SSR going and growing. The Patreon community is full of truly wonderful, thoughtful, compassionate, and smart people, and I know you will love connecting with all of them when you join us. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you are currently supporting the show as a patron, I hope you know how much I appreciate you. Episode 249 is brought to you by the AHK Podcast Primer. If you have ever wanted to start a podcast, this 14-page bundle will help you get there. It walks you through every step of the strategy I developed when I launched SSR back in 2018, with plenty of updated insights too. I am totally self-taught in every aspect of podcasting, but I want to save you some time, which is why I created the AHK Podcast Primer. For $89.99, you'll get the podcast primer, a 
as well as a 30-minute one-on-one session with me to help you get your plan together. Get it at ahkstorytelling.com in dash your dash earbuds. You can also get it at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. Feel free to DM me if you have any questions. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. And use code SSR podcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Stack up on great listens for your summer road trips and let me know what you're loving. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. Excited to really get in our feels today because it is a Lurleen McDaniel day. And we have not talked about Lurleen McDaniel on the show since... I want to say 2019 when we talked about Don't Die, My Love. So this is really long overdue. And I want to hear more about what your reaction was when you saw that I had listed this book on my options for you and why you chose it. It's so funny because the Lurleen McDaniels books were so huge at my elementary school. Like we read them all the time. I feel like our library probably had like 40 of them. And so I kind of assumed it was this universal thing. And then when I was asking some of my friends, like, oh, do you remember those cancer books? They were like, what? (laughs) So yeah, for me, they were like huge. They were like weirdly formative. I read them so much. And apparently that was not the case for everyone, but it was for me. Fair. Well, I shared a little bit about this in our Don't Die My Love episode, but I will just refresh everybody's memories. I did not read Lurleen when I was a kid. I think it would just, I like missed the window somehow. I remember kind of hearing her name here and there. And as I've learned more about her in my research and also just from reading these books, like her style and her vibe fits so perfectly into other kinds of pop culture that I was consuming at the time. Like I was a seventh heaven kid. Like I loved those sort of like family melodrama stories. And I think that Lurleen kind of plays with a similar aesthetic, um, you might say. But I didn't really know uh, about Lurleen's fame until I was working as an assistant at one of the big publishing houses in New York right out of college. And I happened to work for the publishing house that published Lurleen. And one of my jobs as a sales publishing assistant was to pull numbers. I pulled so many numbers, like constantly pulling spreadsheets. And looking not only at new books, but at backlist titles from years and years ago, which sparked to some extent this podcast. But I remember at one point, like, I don't even know what the exercise would have been, but having to pull a list of either, you know, 
all-time bestsellers for the imprint or or I don't even know, maybe it was just like a Lurleen list, but seeing all of her titles stacked on top of each other in an Excel spreadsheet and the titles are so intense. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and so it almost became like a little bit of a joke with all of the assistants because we didn't really know who she was. And just like, again, seeing all of these titles one after another it's a little silly, but then you, of course you take a step back and you do the research and you see that like these books really were formative for a lot of people and very much not a joke for a lot of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of, I think even reading them at the time, I had some sense that they were like a little bit trashy feeling, even though I was very young. Um, so I was really interested to go back and kind of see what my adult self thought about the books. The titles alone, you're right, are, they're pretty intense. Yeah, okay, I can't wait to hear everything. I will say I came across a couple of interesting blog posts, blog reviews about this book, Six Months to Live, and also about the Lurleen McDaniel sort of overarching backlist. And I found one post that I thought was really interesting. I'll link it in the show notes, listeners. But the blogger talks about how this really appealed to her as a hypochondriac kid and how there's something kind of reassuring to her about seeking out stories where the worst possible thing that could possibly happen happened and seeing a real kid like actually navigate that and I got the sense that she felt this peace and knowing that like yes even if the worst thing that could ever happen to me does happen I will at least have these examples in these books to look to and know that like I will hopefully have options and support and resources so I just wanted to call that out because that's a perspective that, again, as a kid who like didn't read these when I was the age that they were intended to be read, I was like, oh, I can kind of see that. I can see how, you know, as a kid, you're taking in all this information about the world, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand like, what are the best things that could happen? What are the worst things that could happen? And maybe trying to acclimate yourself to all of those options in between. There is something kind of, peaceful about about getting accustomed to everything that could happen to you. So I'm wondering if you have any reaction to that. That makes sense. I think part of what reading gives us in childhood is you get to sort of experience all these huge life events that maybe have not happened to you. And you get to sort of know yourself better by imagining, you know, what would I do in that situation or what would that be like for me? And then, of course, when it does happen, a lot of times you realize like, oh, I was totally wrong. And then you learn yourself a whole new way. But I think there is something about being able to see into these sort of really huge life altering, life threatening in these cases, stories that are happening to people and you know, from the safety of the pages. I was also a hypochondriac kid, so <laughs> maybe I had sort of a similar reaction um, where you can, you know, approach this thing that's terrifying, but in this kind of like safer way, reading it as someone who did not personally have childhood cancer, maybe. Well, to that point, I also wanted to note that like what I didn't find was a perspective from an adult who had read these books when they were kids in the thick of a, a situation similar to the situations that Lurleen is putting her characters in. And so I am curious what the reading experience might have been like for a kid like that who isn't necessarily like looking in at the situation as these hypochondriac kids might have been, but like is actually trying to go through it in a real life way. Worth noting, Lurleen McDaniel 
took a lot of pride in doing lots of medical interviews. She did a ton of research into these books to make sure that she was getting things right. She passed away in 2022, so I will use the past tense, but she was extremely religious as far as I can tell. And so she did a lot of extra biblical research when crafting these books so that she could match all of the medical elements that she was learning from the interviews with what she thought of as like a more human element. So yeah, I mean, I think Lurleen did everything she could to get it right, but I would love to know if there are people out there who were going through these things in in the real world, if they felt seen or not so much by these books. I had similar questions as I was reading. In some ways, it was like such a sanitized story, and I have more to say about that later, but, um, but I also, I don't know, I was thinking about how I feel like at the time when the book came out, I feel like the question of like representation and like sort of like honesty and accuracy just sort of wasn't as much a conversation. And I almost feel like we expected less from books. We sort of weren't maybe expecting to read books that were going to make us feel seen maybe, or maybe just growing up as an Asian kid, like it just wasn't something I was trained to expect maybe in a story. But yeah, like I felt like it would be interesting to, yeah, I would also be really interested, I think, to hear what people who'd actually been through similar experiences as children and read the books felt, whether they felt like this was a book that saw them or not, and whether that was even something they wished for in books, I guess, then, or knew how to put into words. Yeah. And there's also different levels of representation, right? So of course, like it was really amazing that Lurleen put these experiences on the page for readers to take in whether it was because they needed to feel seen because those are things they had been through or or because they needed to just like understand that there were other people's stories that had never even occurred to them. And at the same time, it's worth noting that from the research that I've done, like all of the protagonists in Lurleen McDaniel's books are white and presumably middle to upper middle class. And there's rarely, if ever, again, as far as I've learned from the research, I have not read all of Lurleen's 70 plus YA novels. As far as I can tell, none of those books feature a family that's like struggling to access or afford medical treatment. And I think it's important that we pause to like celebrate the fact that in YA today, like in contemporary stories written for teens, we do see similar themes. Like one of the best things about the genre today, I think, and and your books are a great example of this, are that like one of the best things is that we're exploring challenging subjects and we aren't shying away from the real things that kids are dealing with. But there's nuance in our YA today in that not only are kids struggling, but they're also having to deal with like the actual consequences of that struggle. Like maybe there are things going on in their family that are making it even harder for them to cope with a health issue or a mental health concern or something bigger going on in the world. And Lurleen, like, she didn't go quite that far. Like, she got to the representation of here's some really dark experiences that other authors aren't putting on the page for teens, but they're going to be white kids who can afford treatment and whose parents are all together. And, like, we're going to kind of, like, keep anything that might be going on behind the scenes to ensure that they get treatment off of these kids' radars. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Like the the book was like so shockingly, blindingly white to me. Like as I was reading it, I like had to flip back to the beginning to be like, where is this set? And it was set in Columbus. And like, I'm not from the Midwest. So like I had to go like look up like the demographics in Columbus. It's like 25% African-American. Like I was like, why are no one in the book is a person of color? And I was like thinking about this. And then I got to the scene where 
they're at the camp and like all of a sudden there's people dressed as Indians. And it was like this record scratch moment. Ah, I was like, oh God, like what is happening? I'm squirming. I'm squirming in my seat. It was awful. It was. And it came out of nowhere. I was not expecting it. And I think kind of along similar lines, I was just really struck by how much the book read like this like homage to like traditional gender roles. Like I felt like every time a boy was described, including... Don's brother, it was like, he was so strong. He had like broad shoulders and a firm chest and the ending, which, oh my gosh, I want to talk about the ending later, but there's like the line about how she's putting on his jacket and it's like four sizes too big for her. And yeah, the whole, it was just like this vision of like this world that's like super white, super straight, super like traditional masculinity, femininity, um, which I feel like I haven't read in kind of a while. I think I maybe don't seek those books out. And I don't know, I wish I remembered as a kid whether I was like, oh yeah, this is like, this is great. I'm I'm loving it. I'm feeling it. Or if I don't even know if it registered to me, was I, I don't remember. But yeah, that was so striking to me reading this story. There's this real celebration of like male virility is I think the phrase yes. that I would use the sense that like <laughs> every boy, like even the boys that Don is meeting at what she refers to as cancer camp, like they're all big and tough and physical yeah. and aggressive <laughs> and wearing clothes that would overwhelm her. Like, and a lot of the conversation about, as you said, her brother or like all male coded characters in the book like there's this conversation about who are they dating like who could they possibly be kissing and that comes up again and again so let's get into the particulars of six months to live fun fact that i discovered the library of congress actually put a copy of six months to live in a time capsule that will be unearthed in 2089 so this book uh really has has made a splash we get right into the action which i was i was sort of struck by it um it was a little jarring this is how the book opens. When Don Rochelle was 13 years old, they told her she had cancer. She sat in her doctor's office, clutching her mother's hand, who sat clutching her father's hand and stared at the familiar face of Dr. Galland with disbelief. So that's a really intense opening paragraph. I, I Before I go any further, I, I wanna make one thing really clear. And I hope that listeners who have been around for a long time know this. There is bound to be an element of snark with this book, just as there is an element of snark with a lot of the reflection about Lurleen McDaniel that's out there in the world. First of all, Lurleen McDaniel has been quoted saying like, I know I'm not a great writer. I just know that I know how to write really great stories that touch people's hearts. She kind of knows that she was being snarked on. And also what, what we are not snarking on, what I am most certainly not snarking on is the conditions and the circumstances being explored in these books cancer, childhood cancer, like all of these things that these kids are going through are obviously very serious. I think what we might sort of poke a little bit of fun at, and Kelly, correct me if you think I'm wrong, is the tone uh, with which these subjects are explored. And more importantly, the fact that we have come so far in so many ways in the way that we communicate about these kinds of subjects to young people. Like the first step, of course, is getting these experiences on the page. And that's what Lurleen did like she pioneered this genre in a lot of ways but we can look back on it now at the writing and at the way that it's handled and say oh this is a little icky it's a little there's something about it that's a little funky maybe a little funny and now how great is it that she walked so that other authors could run and that the books that are published today for kids about cancer and other traumatic subjects explore those subjects with greater nuance and perhaps with a little bit more seriousness do you think that's a fair disclaimer totally 
yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to do our best to be totally balanced, but we are not snarking on Dawn's situation. We are snarking potentially on Lurleen McDaniel's handling of Dawn's situation. So I just wanted to make sure I said that. So we get right into it. Dawn has been diagnosed with cancer. She's 13 years old. She's in seventh grade. She's a cheerleader. Like she has this very all-American, Ohio, Midwestern existence. And immediately, the first thing we as readers know is that that existence has been derailed. And I thought that that was a really smart move on Lurleen McDaniel's part because while I've never been in that situation myself, I imagine that it mirrors the way that you would actually feel as somebody receiving that kind of a diagnosis where in one minute everything seems fine. Maybe you don't feel 100%, but like you're a normal kid. And then in the next second, you're getting this massive scary diagnosis. And while I initially was like a little put off by the way the book started, as I reflected on it, I was like, oh no, like that's probably how it feels a little bit. That like you go from knowing all these things about yourself to like, oh no, now the only thing I know about myself is that I have to manage this really scary circumstance. Yeah. I also, you know, I haven't read these books in years, obviously. And so when I came to the beginning, I was like, oh, she's getting right into it. And I don't know. I, I think it was interesting that that's, what readers at the time apparently wanted. It was like, yep, get me right to the <laughs> right to where things happen. And yeah, I I haven't personally had cancer, but I think all of us have had loved ones and really people we're very close to who have. And I think there is something about that where, you know, you have this existence and then it does get totally derailed. Whatever plans you had, I forget what Dawn's were. It was like a dance or a cheerleading competition or something. Suddenly all these things that were so important, like they just get pushed aside because you're just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And the urgency too. It's not just that the news mm -hmm. comes quickly, but like the plan begins very quickly. She doesn't even go home. Yes. Like her, her dad goes home to get her things because her doctor has told her that she should go directly to the oncology department at the hospital and she has this moment after the doctor says, like, they'll be expecting you in oncology. And she's like, oh, they're, they're expecting me in oncology. Like, this is now a thing. I am a person who has cancer. And so they know that I'm going to be there. And also just the fear that you are going to be handed off to doctors that you don't know. That's hard enough as an adult, let alone as a kid. Yeah, so much of what was happening in the hospital, I would be curious to know what kind of research that... I know Lurleen did like so much research, she says, but like the fact that her parent, none of her parents stayed with her, I was interested in, um, that seemed somewhat unusual to me. Or the way that the doctors would come in and kind of talk about her condition and her roommate Sandy's condition, like to each other. I was like, oh, was HIPAA around then? It must have been. But I did really sort of like the exploration of these two girls who were going through this similar thing and the ways that they got to bond and connect and feel sort of alienated from their old lives together. Even if that wasn't maybe like as realistic, I thought that it was, I guess, artistic license that I appreciated that they got to sort of have this relationship and explore these things together. Yeah, that's an interesting question about like, would it actually have been allowed for the doctors to kind of like prance around the hospital and like yeah. talk about these different cases? I also am wondering, I mean, of course, so many developments have been made in cancer treatment since this book came out in 1995. Mm -hmm. I don't know the details of those developments, but it would be interesting to maybe read some of the books that Lurleen wrote later in her career to see how her understanding of the field had changed. 
I, I do think it's interesting that this book does educate readers a lot. Like there are a lot of sort of long blocks of dialogue from the doctors who are explaining different things to Dawn so that she understands not only what cancer means, what it's doing to her body, but also the ramifications of treatment, what treatment is going to feel like for her, what the potential side effects are. Um, and it all felt very measured and calm and you use the word sanitized earlier Kelly and I'm wondering mm -hmm. um, if that's what you were referring to. I think partly that like I think the doctors sort of gave her a very like almost emotionless description of what was happening to her which I think sort of checked out with my sort of experiences with loved ones going through that but I think when I think of sanitized like it just felt like maybe the book in some ways didn't really allow for kind of the true grief that I think does come with that sort of life-altering diagnosis. You know, when Sandy dies, Dawn sort of reads the passage in the Bible about like, oh, there's a season for everything. And then she realizes, oh, it was Sandy's time. And she feels calm. She feels comforted. Or there was the scene with the she a psychologist? I'm not quite sure. The person who was coming in and telling Dawn and Sandy about how if they like, you know, visualize their bodies fighting the cancer, then like you have power, you can do this. And even sort of the descriptions, I think, of her physical suffering were sort of very, they didn't go too far. I felt like they sort of presented it as, you know, she felt kind of sick and she lost her hair and she she lost a lot of weight, but it kind of doesn't really dwell on like what it actually means to be, you know, physically suffering in your body for, for so long to be like confronted with your mortality and to be confronted with everyone's mortality around you. The scenes at camp where they're like scattering ashes for the children who've died and it, it kind of doesn't really dwell on it. It's kind of just like, oh, you know, now we have this little ritual and then it moves on. It kind of doesn't get into, I feel like the really sort of like emotional realm. Everything is kind of kept very sort of calm, I think, very, very clean. That's true. Uh, as you were saying that, I, I was reminded again, like, this book is so short. It is short. For for the depth of the story, I mean, it, this is 136 pages, and it's a narrow oh, little wow. <laughs> size, lots of margin. I was really surprised when it showed up in the mail. Um, I was like, this is this is going to be one of the sad cancer stories. Like that's all that we're going to get. There are four more books in the Don Rochelle series. So I assume that they there's more, but I agree with you. I'm thinking back on Don't Die My Love, which was the other book that we read for the podcast. And that book I'm, I'm fairly sure is about older teenagers. And so I think it was more emotional. Like I think it felt like it was much more melodramatic as much as people kind of like clown on the on the Lurleen McDaniel genre, like for its melodrama, there's actually not that much melodrama in six months to live. It's pretty straightforward because it's so short. The brevity kind of like forces that like Dawn finds out that she's sick, she gets checked into the hospital, she makes a friend, they go into remission, they go to camp, and then it's really sad at the end, period. I wonder if because she knew she was dealing with younger readers and younger characters, the author felt as though Dawn wouldn't be as reflective or meditative about those bigger questions that you were talking about, Kelly, but I was waiting for it. Like, I don't ever really remember Dawn lingering too much on what it would mean for her if she didn't get better like she was much more hung up on and look I'm not putting these concerns down at all because I have not been in this situation and I'm sure it's terrible and 
these are the things that you, of course, would probably think of immediately. But like, she's very concerned about her hair and losing weight. Like, those are the things that pop into her mind first. Yeah. But I think to your point, like, she doesn't really think much further than that. And I wonder if partially, like, Lurleen just didn't feel like she was prepared to go into that for a 12 or 13 year old, or if she just knew she was going to write more about this character. I did. I mean, I appreciated those sort of concerns and even the ones about like, oh my gosh, like is the guy like, is he still going to like look at me? Like, because I feel like that is so true, right? Like you have these huge existential questions, but then also like you're still you and the people you care about, the things you care about, like those are so real and they're important. Totally. But I, after I read the book, I was like, what is her whole deal? So I was like looking up Lurleena McDaniels and I was watching her YouTube channel for a little bit. And she was talking about how Don't Die, My Love was like far and away her most popular book. And she was saying, you know, if I knew why, I would write a hundred more just like that. I could be wrong, but I I think this one was her first, right? Six Months to Live was her first. So her first was actually about a girl who was diagnosed with diabetes which was oh, inspired okay. yeah, by her, her like first, had, yeah, yeah, her personal experience with her son. But I think that this was still like pretty early on. There were, I mean, okay. she wrote seventy books for for teens, so there were a lot of books that were quieter. I think that this was one of the first, if not the first, that like really made a splash, like breakout book. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, seventy books, you have a lot of room to explore and experiment. So probably she was always, always trying to figure out, I guess, what she wanted to do next. I read that at her fastest, she was writing one book every eight to 12 weeks. I can believe it because if I remember right, like even reading them, like, you know, they were pretty formulaic. And I think, especially after reading this one, like the characters were very much like tropes, like, you know, how long does it take to write a guy with a big chest and a huge jacket? (laughs) So I can see that. I feel like she knew her niche and she, she went for it. Yes. Okay, so Don is checked in to the oncology department. And like you said, like it is, it's very disturbing to me that we just are meant to accept the fact that her parents are not really going to be allowed to hang out. They're, they leave pretty soon after she gets settled. And she's left waiting for her roommate. And my expectation, and maybe this is just because it's 2023 and I've read my fair share of bad roommate stories, but I was fully prepared for her and her roommate to hate each other or for there to be some like weird dynamic between the two of them. But in fact, her roommate is named Sandy and she's this like little Southern belle from West Virginia with a great accent. And Dawn spends a lot of time describing like for lack of a better word, how cute she is, which I thought was interesting. And they end up bonding really quickly. They become best friends. And I loved the way that their friendship was depicted. I think I vaguely in like some deep recess of my brain, I like remembered like as soon as we saw Sandy on the page, I was like, Oh, I think she dies. But I couldn't remember if it was like I remembered that or just kind of knowing the genre. Like you just kind of know it's that kind of story where someone is not going to make it to the end of the book. Sandy was an interesting character. I don't want to get too far into the end, but I had so many thoughts about um, sort of the end of the book for Sandy. We can go there. So at the end, um, her cancer comes back. She learns she's relapsed kind of very quickly. Yeah. And her parents take her to a clinic in Mexico. And I wasn't sure if we were supposed to read it as they sort of knew she probably wasn't going to get better and they just wanted her to be comfortable. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to read it as they actually thought this clinic was maybe going to be 
her best chance. I wasn't sure because all we hear is sort of her, you know, very short letter to Dawn. I wasn't sure if Sandy was aware, like, you know, this is it. She's not going to get better. If she agreed with her parents' decisions, if she trusted her parents' decisions. By the end, I was like, oh my gosh, like justice for Sandy. Like, why did her parents, you know, not get her treatment? And then um, I expected it to be sort of, you know, this huge thing that Dawn had to grapple with, both like the death and also just like her parents' decision to not pursue treatment for her. And then the book ended and I was like, oh my gosh, I (laughs) hadn't realized I was like, I was reading on Kindle, so I didn't realize it was like at the end. But that was the most shocking part of the book to me, I think, that Sandy died maybe because of her parents' medical decisions for her. And then Dawn just accepted it. It was her time. God wanted her home. That was it. Then she went and (laughs) saw her crush and wore his huge jacket and the end. The end. As you were repeating that from the book, and yes, like the last like 20 pages are a sprint and all of a sudden it's over and Sandy is gone and it's heartbreaking. But I'm... I'm maybe backtracking a little bit about something I said earlier about the sort of like privilege level of the characters in this book. And of course, I'm making a lot of things up right now because we don't know that much about Sandy and I'm reading between the lines of some stuff. But through my 2023 lens, I look at the way that Sandy's parents are written and they they do play a pretty big role like we meet them a few times on the page Sandy talks quite a bit about them we get a pretty clear picture of her dad especially and of the power dynamics between her parents like her dad is definitely in charge I would say that Lurleen leaned pretty heavily into these like very like conservative southern tropes yes uh the way her dad talked the way that her dad and her mom interacted with each other and From the beginning, Sandy kind of refers to the fact that her dad's like not happy that she is at this children's hospital. And we get the sense that it's a hospital that's very widely respected and that's doing a lot of big, important things. Maybe that it's a wealthy hospital, like all of these things. Like we, we can all picture what this kind of a hospital might look like. We don't know what Sandy's family's financial circumstances are, but we know that they are traveling a pretty far distance to bring Sandy there. They've made the decision to have her go there because presumably it's the best possible treatment that they can get. But maybe her dad has some like judgment, like chip on the shoulder kind of thing about like taking his daughter to this sort of fancy hospital when he would have preferred potentially to have her go to like a neighborhood hospital in West Virginia. And I don't know, I guess as we're talking more about the decision that they made to have her go to Mexico, while of course, like it's expensive to go to Mexico, the travel part of it, like, maybe they could no longer like afford to have her get care at this hospital in Ohio. Like maybe that played into it. And maybe some of what's going on here is like the differences in the circumstance between Don's family and Sandy's family. That's an interesting read. I hadn't thought about that. I did. I kind of assumed they weren't staying with her because they needed to work. Mm. Um, so I think that kind of tracked with your sense that maybe they were like financially in a different situation, but I don't know. I think if I had to guess, I would maybe say my sort of biggest guess was like, you know, they weren't happy with how the treatment had gone. Um, The cancer came back really fast. Her dad clearly never trusted the doctors. And, you know, maybe he didn't really have kind of this like sciencey background. And he sort of felt like 
fresh air and good food was what she actually needed. But then it's hard to imagine them being so delusional that they were like, yes, this will cure her. So maybe that's not my guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think Lurleen maybe like didn't expect us to have quite so many questions because we obviously (laughs) have questions. But the neat thing about Sandy and, and her relationship with Dawn is that she's always like a step or two ahead of Dawn in this journey, which is sort of scary foreshadowing for later in the series, because I don't know what happens to Dawn over the course of the next four books. So she is in the hospital when Dawn arrives. Dawn observes her really suffering the side effects of chemo and other treatments. So Dawn can kind of like see what's ahead of her. They bond, they really begin to understand each other. And Sandy goes into remission before Dawn does. They're always like kind of in lockstep, but just a couple of weeks apart. And I loved the way the author portrayed the sense of like needing to be around somebody who understands you and the distance that Dawn feels from the kids back home and even from her family. And I've never had cancer, but I have loved ones who've had cancer or who have been through other traumatic circumstances. I think we've all been in moments in different ways where we felt like the people from our like quote normal lives who knew us as like our happy selves could no longer understand who we were. So I really appreciated the way we see that all through Dawn's eyes. Like we see her excited at first that her friends from school are going to come visit her, but then they come and she feels uncomfortable because they care about things that just aren't important to her anymore. And like her whole perspective on life has changed. And ultimately Sandy is the only other person that understands where that perspective change has come from. And I just thought that was really special. And it, of course, makes the ending of the book that much more heartbreaking because Dawn feels as though Sandy is the only one who she can relate to. But I just thought that, you know, even stepping back and looking more more big picture at like what it's like to try to relate to your old life when you're in a scary new circumstance, I thought that was really well done. I agree. I thought that was one of the strongest parts of the book. The scene, I think, when she is actually back at school and it's like this, you know, she's been waiting all this time to get home. She's been like fighting and enduring like all this trauma and all this suffering to get back here, back to her old life. And then she gets there and it's like, oh, this is, this is it. Like there's kind of that emptiness there, that sense that she is no longer the same person. And there's, I think, a lot of trauma. She's probably having like, you know, depression from just everything she's been through. And I thought that was like a really honest look at what it's like, like you said, to go through something huge and traumatic. And then the life that you were so anxious to get back to, suddenly there's that new sort of hollowness in that that life because of what you've been through. And the realization that the people that you thought loved you the most and knew you the best don't necessarily know you the best once your circumstances have changed. Totally. That's a hard thing to swallow as an adult, let alone as a seventh grader. So um, I really felt for Dawn in those moments. You mentioned this briefly, Kelly, but I want to linger on it for a minute because I had really mixed feelings about it. I believe the doctor was Dr. Neeland, and she is the one who you referenced earlier who is really talking to them about like these visualization exercises. She wants them to draw pictures of the cancer being battled and like destroyed by different forces. And Dawn has a teddy bear collection. And so she attaches herself to this vision of her teddy bear collection, like attacking the cancer cells and killing them. Dr. Neeland, like pretty much all of the other medical professionals in this book, has a series of monologues about like how to fight cancer with mindset and how so much of 
surviving the disease is about like kind of making peace with your diagnosis, but like knowing how to manage it mentally. And I was feeling a little bit of toxic positivity. Like the, oh, yeah. it was just like really <laughs> off putting. And again, I want to be careful about how I talk about this because I am sure, and I, and I've heard people talk about the fact that having a positive attitude and like thinking about things in a certain way can like certainly help somebody's journey as they go through difficult treatment. I don't think that that's the same as like scientifically saying, yes, if you have a positive attitude, you will 100% beat a disease. And I feel like saying that to 12 and 13 year old kids who are really impressionable and scared, I was sort of like, I was, I wanted to yell at this doctor and just be like, yes, like you can give them exercises to make them feel better. And like, how about they just go to therapy? Like, can they just go talk to somebody who's not trying to make them be positive and just who like wants to hear their fears? Like there was no space for that. That's such a good point. Yeah, I definitely like had the same reaction to that session. I thought it was kind of bonkers. That was one part I was like, couldn't have done too much research into this (laughs) part. But um, yeah, they never really, even at camp, like there's never really a space where they get to just sort of, be honest and open and vulnerable about their fears or how they're feeling. They're kind of just soldiering on, doing the treatment, picturing the cells dying. Yeah, that's interesting. They really didn't sort of have that space in the story. The the ashes at camp that you mentioned before, I think are the closest we get that they have this little ceremony at the opening of camp where kids bring back you know, little match matchboxes of ashes and they throw them on the bonfire in memory of campers who can't be back at camp this summer because they've lost their battle to cancer. And watching or reading about Dawn absorbing what that means, like I felt like that was maybe the most vulnerable, the most raw part of the book. And I would have liked to see a little bit more of that. I think that would have been important. But let's talk about camp a little bit more while we're here because camp is an interesting turning point in some ways. Don and Sandy have both gone into remission. And as you mentioned, Don was like so excited to go back home, so excited to go to school. But when she gets back, she realizes that it's not exactly the place that she remembered. She's not as comfortable around her old friends as she hoped that she would be. And so while she had kind of laughed off the idea of going to quote cancer camp when the doctors at the hospital had suggested it to her, now she misses Sandy so much that she's like, okay, if Sandy will go to camp, then I will go to camp. And it ends up being like the best two weeks of her life in a way that like, it made me so nostalgic for camp and like camp adjacent experiences that I had as a kid where like, maybe you think it's going to be lame before you go and you have social anxiety or whatever, but you get there. And within two days, you're like, I don't know how, how I ever functioned without these people. Like, this is my whole universe. I've never been anywhere else but this camp. So they're only there for two weeks, but it changes Dawn's life. And to see her be so comfortable, like I was really taken with this idea that she when she was at home, she had seen boys that she'd had a crush on before she'd gotten sick or even just like noticing boys that she thought were cute. And she felt self-conscious because she was like, oh, but they they just know that I'm the girl who had or has cancer. There's something about her being at camp and it, it, she was able to let that go and like let her guard down. And every boy that was at camp had been through something challenging medically. And it just sort of like leveled the playing field in a really beautiful way that made me so happy for the girls. Like they just got to be kids. Like they got to be 12 and 13 year old girls who had crushes and who were excited to talk about boys. And they have these like camp boyfriends, Mike and Greg, and they go swimming. And Dawn has this really magical like first kiss with Greg at the campfire. Like 
it really was idyllic in so many ways. I loved that for them. Like just the knowing how hard it had been for Dawn at home in ways that I think she didn't really fully get to process. Like she just got to come here, be a kid, be so happy. It made me also nostalgic, I think, for my own camp experiences. And I loved that they got to do that. I thought that was like a really sort of like nice light moment in the book. Although camp itself was <laughs> would not also fly in 2023, I think. No, I have so much <laughs> about the camp. Yeah, I have some questions about Dr. Ben, <laughs> as I think the the director of the camp. Lots of questions about Dr. Ben. <laughs> Dr. Ben is like the the camp leader, the camp director. He tries to be really jokey and like cool guy with the kids, and I didn't love the whole plot line where Sandy and Don and Greg and Mike decide that they're going to prank him especially because the prank ends up involving his underwear which they like then decorate with flower decals and hoist onto a flagpole and again that definitely wouldn't fly in 2023 like so much about the relationship between Ben and his campers would not fly in 2023 but I just like didn't understand this prank like this was where Lurleen lost me and where maybe she could have used a few more pages because like the depth of their relationship between the kids and Ben, like there is a world in which like, yes, if you spend a whole summer at camp and you form a certain relationship with like the adult employees of the camp and you feel comfortable with them and like maybe they're like within reason, within appropriateness, like pranks that you could play on that adult. Sure, but this was not that. Like, we didn't get the sense that there was much of, like, an intimate or, like, cozy relationship between the kids and Ben. They just were, like, bored and wanted to do something crazy. And so they did these pranks. And I was like, how is anybody going to know that this is Ben's underwear, first of all? Like, it's just underwear on the flagpole. Like, (laughs) and they went through so much trouble to, like, get these underwear. And Sandy stayed up, like, all night embroidering flowers onto this man's underwear. And I just wanted to be like, ladies, like once this underwear is on the flagpole, how are we to know that your fellow campers are going to understand that that's like Ben's underwear and not like how how crazy are you that you stole yeah. it? Like I just, the prank thing lost me. <laughs> I had the exact same reaction <laughs> starting with like, I really didn't feel like they would have any investment in Dr. Ben. Yeah. Or it'd be like, let's do this hilarious thing. He's going to think it's so funny. Like, And I feel like, you know, they were so absorbed with each other, with their foursome in a way that I really loved. Like, I just, I feel like that would have been it. Like, they wouldn't have gone outside that foursome to involve this middle-aged man that they really didn't care about. And yeah, the thing about the underwear was so weird. It was, again, like, super, like, kind of weirdly transphobic. Like, oh, flowers on a man's underwear. Like, yeah, that part was so weird to me. A lot about camp, honestly, was very weird yeah but I love that the four of them got to have this like time where they just felt like normal and happy and delirious with like the joy of just being together and falling in love at this place that you know no one knows you and you get to present just this camp version of yourself Mm -hmm. I did love that camp had some high highs and some low lows and some things (laughs) that I just don't think we'll ever understand but the real low low of course comes after camp Dawn is heartbroken to have to leave camp at all. And then she gets home. She gets word from Sandy that Sandy's had a relapse of her cancer. As we talked about before, she's gone to Mexico to pursue this sort of like non-treatment treatment. 
and she gets a telegram, which I thought was sort of interesting. And I, I was glad that at least she acknowledged that it was interesting that she was like, who sends a telegram? And I was like, who does send a telegram? Like, <laughs> I did not see that one coming. But um, Sandy has passed away and her parents are letting Dawn know. And I thought it was really sweet that they like asked Dawn to stay in touch. Like they wanted to maintain this relationship with her as somebody who had been important to their daughter and, and to their daughter's journey through her illness. And they send a few special things of Sandy's to Dawn, including a matchbox of ashes that she can then hopefully bring to cancer camp next year to spread in memory of her friend. And yes, this Bible, this page from the Bible, which had been very important to Sandy about seasons. And uh, as you referenced earlier, earlier, Kelly, Dawn like meditates a lot on that and really takes on this idea of like seasonality and like nothing lasts forever. And it doesn't really work for me. Felt like it wrapped things up in a really shiny bow um, that sort of, I don't know, ignored the fact that even if you are a person of faith, even if you are somebody who has these meaningful coping mechanisms for loss, like it's still just devastating for something like this to happen, especially when you're a kid. Yeah, I was so angry at the ending. You know, it was heartbreaking that Sandy died and like possibly died needlessly because her parents like made this decision about her lack of treatment and Donna has lost her best friends. Like I kept thinking about Mike and Greg, like someone's got to tell them. Um, And then within like, honestly, like three pages, like Donna has been like, yep, it was her time. I feel calm. I feel peace knowing that. And then she goes and sees, is it Jimmy, the guy she's in with at home? Yeah. Oh, Jake, Jake. And then she sees Jake and wears his jacket and it's like, Oh, everything. And I was, yeah, I said this before, but I was like, wait, that's the end? That's it? I was furious at the ending. Yeah, it feels very 90s. Like when I think about, again, like the the TV shows that I used to watch and just sort of like that after school special kind of vibe of like something terrible is going to happen, but we are going to make sense of it in this defined window of time or within a pretty narrow page count and everything's going to be fine and we're going to move on. And the nice thing is that I think we over the last few decades have learned the importance of nuance and the way that we write and tell stories. And this book does not have that. (laughs) One thing it also doesn't have that I thought was kind of interesting is I feel like when you look at now, like the sort of like cancer genre and the cancer stories. um, And I was thinking about, um, do you remember A Walk to Remember that movie that was like, yeah, I feel like it doesn't really, the book doesn't really have the sense of like the tragic cancer heroine, like, that sort of like romanticized view of like, oh, this like frail woman dying of, you know, wasting disease. I feel like Sandy is never that. And Dawn is not that either. And I guess maybe she's not quite as ill as Sandy was, but I feel like it interestingly doesn't really have that trope, which I thought was kind of surprising. I was expecting it to have that on reread, but it really kind of didn't. I wonder if part of it, because I, I felt that way too. And for me, I think some of it came from the fact that I like didn't really get to know Don very well. Mm. And um, it was also, as you said, sanitized and like surface level. And like, yes, this is your diagnosis. This is what it means to have your, your diagnosis. This is what is going to happen to you next. And it was all very like arm's length, basically no interiority whatsoever. And I think because of that, like it was harder for me to have the feelings about Dawn that I like wanted to have as the tragic heroine. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I think like, or even if you look at like John Green books or other books in the genre that have come, you know, really thanks to Lurleen in some ways, there just isn't like the depth of that, like tragic heroine trope. I think there's also not kind of a sense at all that like 
I don't know, like when you look at the way people respond or the ways that Don's kind of worried that people respond, it's not like, oh, there's going to be all this attention. Are people going to think this is so profound? It's like people are going to think it's icky. People are going to think like, oh, maybe it's contagious. Like one of the boys at camp was saying that. Like, And it kind of made me wonder, like, did that trope not even exist in the same way yet? Like were these books part of what like started that whole trope? I don't know. Did they cause problems as they were they, trying yeah. to <laughs> <Yeah>. make solutions? <laughs> oh, I guess we'll never know. But yeah, those are really interesting questions. And I do think it's important to like think about this book like as part of this long timeline of, of books that explore similar themes and similar journeys. One of the bloggers that I found like talked about like Beth March as like the sort of original mm. Uh, Lurleen McDaniel heroine and that you know Lurleen didn't invent this genre but I think you used the word formula earlier Kelly like she created a formula out of this and lots of other writers and creators have followed a similar formula and tweaked that formula and learned to operate it with a lot more depth and nuance and yeah it, it is so interesting that like this is a type of book that continues to be so fascinating to teenagers like what is it about illness and tragedy that is so tantalizing for teen readers it is it's it is interesting and it's interesting to see how it's been done over time but on the whole Kelly I'm curious how did this experience rereading six months to live live up to your expectations of it or to your memories of reading it when you were a kid I would say it was pretty different than I expected I think I expected like you mentioned earlier like a lot more melodrama and I was surprised that that wasn't there I think I was kind of surprised too by, as you mentioned also, how little interiority there was and how little we got to know the characters. Because I'd kind of remembered these characters looming so large in my mind and reading it now as an adult, I was like, oh, like, <laughs> how? Like, they're, they're barely even characters at all. But yeah, I, I wish I could go back and be my younger self for like a day and read the books and remember like what I was feeling at the time when I read them. It was It was really interesting to revisit and just see, I think, all the things that you know, with an adult perspective, I didn't pick up at the time. And also just to imagine like, you know, a school full of adults, like shoving these books at children, like, yeah, we have like 50 of them, read them, check out more. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know that I would necessarily, you know, highly recommend them to my own children, but they definitely did play a huge role in, in my life, my reading life. I forgot where I where I read this, but there was maybe like a review or a Publishers Weekly piece that was commenting on the fact that like, these books are pretty clean in the way they talk about like mm. relationships and sex and drinking and drugs. And there's not much of that in this book. And that was something that like that Lurleen McDaniel like really did intentionally. And, and just how like teachers and librarians were much more comfortable, like giving books about kids literally dying of cancer than <laughs> books about kids potentially having sex. Yeah. Uh, which is that striking, which is yeah. really striking when you break it down <laughs> like that. Uh, well, I'm so glad that we had this conversation. It's a really interesting one. Um, I look forward to maybe more Lurleen in the future on the podcast. She's an interesting case, that's for sure. But other than Six Months to Live, Kelly, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm actually reading a book right now that I think is kind of an interesting conversation with, with this book and some of the things we talked about. It's called A Living Remedy by Nicole Chung. She's the author of a previous memoir called All You Could Ever Know, and that was about her experience as a Korean-American adoptee finding her family. And the book that I'm reading now, A Living Remedy, it's actually about, um, I'm not 
I'm probably only like halfway into it, but it's about her father's experience in the medical system and his death in large part because he wasn't able to access the health care that he needed to sort of treat. Um, he had kidney failure when it was much sooner and more treatable. And there was a phrase that I just read in her story that really has kind of haunted me. She was talking about how her friend said, you know, your father's death is like this, this common American death where people have these conditions and diseases that they're not able to adequately treat or manage because they can't afford to access the care for them. And it's it's heartbreaking. It's enraging. Um, and I thought it sort of was a really interesting look at the grief and the just everything that comes with having somebody, a loved one who has an illness that they can't access the life-saving care for. So it's really good so far. I would highly recommend it. And that is very relevant to the conversation we just had. So thank you for sharing. I will include both of those books in the show notes for this episode. And as we drop this episode on June 20th, your new book has been out in the world for a week. Congratulations. What can you tell us about it? Thank you. My latest book is called Everyone Wants to Know. And it's the story of this family of influencers. The parents have five children and they used to have a reality show. Their last name is Lo. And so the show was called Lo and Behold. And they kind of transformed this reality show career into a career of, you know, they have like podcasts and they sort of write these inspirational books about their kind of like aspirational lives. But behind the scenes, everything is cracking. The parents have just announced that they're separated. And 17-year-old Honor, who's the main character, is freaking out, trying to keep everyone together, and also sort of really aware of the fact that for her family, image is everything, both reputationally and in terms of like their livelihood. So she's kind of caught between figuring out how to protect her family's reputation and then starting to question, is that maybe the most important thing to her and dealing with like all the behind the scenes fallout. Um, And I don't want to give away spoilers, but there's a storyline that sort of um, would be interesting to readers of Six Months to Live and other Learning McDaniels books. Ooh, well, that has my name written all over it because I love your writing, first of all, and I love anything that explores like the reality TV and influencing universes. I think it's fascinating to see how we are writing about and telling stories about that part of our world. So um, listeners, go get yourself a copy of Everyone Wants to Know. And Kelly, thank you for spending this time with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun to talk about this book all these years later. I agree. Thanks. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.